Hello there and welcome to a brand new episode of the Sports Pro Podcast. Now this week is an exciting podcast for me because I have been given unfettered permission to talk about cricket for at least half an hour and maybe it's for that reason that I'm not joined by Tom Bassam this week as he spends a week on holiday but instead I'm delighted to be joined by our features editor Sam Carp. Sam, welcome to the show. Cheers, George. Thanks very much for having me. Delighted to be here for this cricketing crusade that you're on. Um, how was your bank holiday weekend? Yeah, it was very nice. Enjoyed a bit of the sun and a bit of a super Sunday of sport, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, it was. Well, it was meant to be the IPL final that day, which we'll come on to, which was actually quite convenient because it meant that people could concentrate on the Premier League final day that day. And then we kind of got into the IPL on the Monday, didn't we? So, uh, so yeah, box office, really, I think it was that weekend. It was, yeah. The Sunday finale to the Premier League, barely got a mention in my household as bitter Arsenal fans who still couldn't quite get over our late stumble in our title race. But it started off with our brother-in-arms at the Streamtime podcast, Chris Stone's GB Women, with a very unfortunate one-point defeat to Germany in Solingen in the IFAF Women's European Championship in American football. And then, as you said, we're meant to see the IPL final, a full house of 100,000-plus in the Narendra Modi Stadium in Ahmedabad. But the rain intervened. Very sad. But uh, luckily, there was a reserve there. But did you catch the game when it finally happened on the Monday? I did. I started watching it and then the rain hit again, didn't it, George? I think it was three hours rain delay reduced the chase to 15 overs. But what a chase it was. I mean, like, so, so exciting, which I kind of think just spoke to the, the quality of the IPL, which seems to get better every year and continues to, you know, not only delivers commercially, but continues to deliver on the pitch, which is, I guess, testament to the talent that they're able to attract every year. Yeah, the quality on show and I think by the time that gate that chase had got underway it was well past midnight locally but those 75,000 that stuck around they got treated to one hell of a spectacle yeah what a game that three hour delay was perfectly timed to coincide with my two and a half hour train back to London from home so I was desperately running from the tube station one uh, sky go in one hand shopping in the other trying to get back home in time but as you say I think it is a testament to the way the tournament's developed it's you know, it is the absolute pinnacle of cricket when it comes to commercial revenues, when it comes to, you know, the reach it gathers, the audience it brings in. But also in terms of the standard of play, it's just mad. The quality of young Indian talent that is coming through, I think it's uh, Sai Sadarshan, who's significantly younger than me, but is just a, a phenomenal talent. And the ranks of incredible young Indian players to come through is pretty frightening from an international cricket point of view. Yeah, but it's still have a, you still have a 41-year-old Mahendra Singh Dhoni as kind of the whole star of the show the whole time as well. But yeah, I mean, as you spoke to there, the reach of the final will have been pretty significant and the reach of the tournament, which is something I think we're going to come on to as well, was huge this year, which kind of coincided with the start of those new broadcast deals that the IPL has as well. Before we go into the, the business side of things and wrapping up the tournament, which is pretty impressive, I saw, a, I saw a stat on Twitter over the weekend that compared the noise levels that a company... MS Dhoni walking to the crease, that of a, a jumbo jet. That's how loud it gets in the stadium. Did you see him walk out to bat? I didn't, uh, but I saw him get out and I saw it felt like you could hear a pin drop in yeah. the stadium at that point. So just the, the noise and the atmosphere when like you could see him sort of rising up off the bench and walking over the boundary foam and just sat at home watching it on an iPhone. It is completely spine tingling. It's just an amazing experience. I, I must say, I think 
one thing be top of my sporting bucket list i think to watch ms only back in the ipl final just yeah what an experience anyway should we um should we take a look back on the last what six eight weeks or so that the tournament's been going on for it's been record-breaking in a lot of ways isn't it Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, last week it was revealed exclusively to Sports Pro actually that um, that Disney Star's coverage of the tournament had reached 482 million viewers over the first 66 matches. So that meant it was already the most watched edition on television ever, breaking the previous highest set during the 29 season with eight games to go. I mean, we should caveat that with the fact that the 2019 edition had less games than than this year's because there's obviously been two new franchises added since then. But I think that's kind of that speaks to you know the way that Disney Star probably had to up their game a little bit this year with the new broadcast arrangement obviously Disney retaining the television rights domestically in India but Viacom 18 got the digital rights and were broadcasting that across their geo cinema platform which was also seeing really really big numbers I think some of the numbers that came out overnight there were 32 million viewers for the final on that platform so that's sort of digital alone and you sort of start to think about it you think and just the kind of points of comparison in terms of other sporting events obviously it's not on the super bowl level yet but once those disney star numbers come in as well you know it'll probably be pushing somewhere towards that there aren't that many annual sporting events that come on those kind of those kind of viewership numbers you know speaking about the super bowl again there's a way you're sort of watching it yesterday you can see how it's kind of becoming that for that for the Indian market basically I know we were sort of talking about IndyCar being <laughs> the Indy 500 being IndyCar Super Bowl last week on this pod so trying not to repeat ourselves, <laughs> ourselves too much but you know there is a there is a sense that it is that in this in in terms of kind of the spectacle half-time show they've even got a half-time show for the first time this season exactly and also you know the, but the bulk of that viewership will be coming domestically which is something which has always been associated with the Super Bowl too so there are those parallels that you can draw but some of the reach from this season was just really really incredible and i know that you were speaking last year at sports pro apac about kind of what impact those deals were going to have yeah because i think that that's definitely a factor i was interested to see the level of fragmentation that was going to happen of audiences not just between the two platforms obviously having two places to watch it needing two different subscriptions may have cannibalized certain sections of the audience but I found it very interesting that in the lead up to the tournament, Geo Cinema announced that they wouldn't be putting any of the games behind a paywall. They'd be essentially free to air and therefore banking on the advertising revenue, making the shortfall. And Disney responded. They put some of their games in front of the paywall as well. So they became free to air. Not all of them, but uh, that article you mentioned, uh, the exclusive we had last week in terms of the viewers. It talks about bringing in a lot of extra subscribers to Star. So 11 million new Star Sports subscribers over the course of the tournament. And that was just to date. And the new initiatives, as you said, the need for Star to up their game a bit, the inclusion of Rivalry Week, where they put sort of franchises together, local rivalries going head to head in the same week. They estimate they had 21 million new viewers alone just for that week. So pretty amazing stats. And as you say, it's domestic, which is the exciting part. I think there's so much room for growth when it comes to the IPL. I found it fascinating yesterday on Sky in the UK, on Sky Sports main event, which is where they put their biggest broadcast fixture for the day. We had Durham versus Lancashire, I think it was, in the T20 blast in a half-empty stadium. But then you have the IPL final with hundreds of millions of people viewing around the world on sort of five channels later that is going to change that is going to grow in the uk and south africa and other international cricket markets particularly as these franchises expand so there's so much room for further growth it's scary 
Yeah, I think on the um, on the broadcast front as well, you mentioned the sort of the fragmentation element and the kind of, you know, what it would mean having multiple subscriptions. But you could say that everyone won this year, but particularly the fans and having, you know, two different destinations, more free coverage of the tournament than there has been in the past. Disney Star upping their game, as you mentioned, with that rivalry week would have been something that would have massively appealed to fans. But also you could say, you know, the big winner here is the IPL and that they've entered this new cycle generating huge sums of money you know what was it six billion i think combined for for this cycle they're getting for their broadcast rights they've expanded their reach and doing so based on the numbers that have been released so far and then it's also a win for those broadcasters because based on what we've seen is they're both pretty satisfied with what they've got from a viewership perspective and also from an advertising revenue perspective that article that we keep referring back to um sandra gupta the head of sports at disney star said that advertising revenue was up thanks to the record viewership I think it was four new sponsors and 30 brands come on board since the season started. So everybody wins really, but you know, the big winner is probably the IPO again and, and expanding its reach and kind of just, you know, the huge amounts of money that, that have come through this deal. That's a really interesting point when it comes to everyone winning, because when I first looked at the deal, I assumed it was a bit of a power play from Viacom 18. They'd obviously had significant financial investment. The partnership with Paramount, for instance, bringing a wealth of entertainment, geocinemas, very well-established brands in the Indian market from a non-sports point of view. So it really looked like at that time it was going head to head, you know, cannibalizing the Disney Plus or the Disney Hotstar subscribers. It caused Disney themselves to re-revise their forecast for subscriber numbers. But actually, having spoken with them as well in the lead up to some of our APAC-focused events, they talk about working very much in harmony and in partnership and it's a phrase I use quite a lot in this podcast, but rising tides do lift all ships. We've seen massive new sponsors coming into this year's tournament which we'll come on to in a minute and we've seen great viewing numbers across both platforms i think 40 out of the first 66 matches on the linear side of things so on disney star they've had more than 30 million concurrent viewers on geo cinema they've had peak concurrence of nearly 24 million which is crazy considering it's about an 80 20 split i think between linear and digital for previous editions of this year's tournament more than 13 billion views on geo cinema in their first five weeks and as you mentioned sort of 482 unique viewers across Disney Star. Numbers that any broadcaster, really, and in particular, any advertiser would rip your hands off for. Yeah, exactly. And I think also when you talk about just you mentioning, I think it was 40 of 66 there and the, the number of viewers that they got. When I sort of think of stats like that, it makes me think of, it, I keep going back to the NFL. But that's the, that's the echelon it's at now. Yeah, there's always that point made as you approach the end of every year. There's those stats that come out about the top 100 most watched broadcasts across everything in the States. And the NFL usually occupies three quarters or more of that. We don't get the same sort of reporting on the Indian market, but you wouldn't be surprised if like IPL is starting to rival that. There's not quite that many games yet, but you know, if there was a similar list, you'd imagine that IPL and its flagship games are occupying a big chunk of that. So that's the stage where it's getting to at the moment. And for the fact that it's only in its 16th, 16th year now as you say we're kind of only scratching the surface in terms of the impact that the IPL is going to have and the underlying numbers back up that comparison with the NFL I think that the IPL has now become the second most valuable sports property per game and in terms of media rights value in the world just behind the NFL overtaking the Premier League in the previous rights agreement and as you said that's only really going up it looks as if it's only just beginning to tap the potential that that fragmentation looks at. You wonder whether, you know, other cricketing properties like the ICC with a strong appetite in the Indian market might look 
to follow a similar approach and look for similar growth. But yeah, I think it's it's really exciting. And the main thing here is advertising, bringing that reach and bringing that huge population and huge purchasing power, therefore, under one roof towards one property. And I think they've managed to do that this year by collaborating. And I can imagine that some of the advertising contracts that they've both been able to sign as a result have been eye-watering for the market itself. But it's not just the broadcast era where we've seen change and particularly where we've seen growth. As our sponsorship guru, I'll hand over the reins to you to talk a little bit about some of the commercial deals that have been signed this year. I wrote a piece at the start of this year, actually, about, I guess, the changing nature of some of the IPL sponsorships. Um, So that was kind of looking at the team level more than anything. So I guess in the last couple of years, it's been quite a good opportunity for startups to make themselves known. Like, you know, what you know there's no better way to showcase yourself to the indian market than through the ipl and we'd seen a lot of startups signing deals at the team level that kind of dried up this year for a number of reasons obviously there's been a bit of a funding winter so funding's dried up for a lot of those startups naturally they have less to spend on marketing and sponsorship and in terms of who replaced them it was actually kind of your more traditional sponsors so like beverage brands you also saw a few more global brands coming in and that's kind of something that i think is the next opportunity for the IPL I suppose in terms of really appealing to those global companies because if you look at the lineup of sponsors at the league level at the moment it's almost exclusively Indian facing brands so Tassa Communications is the title sponsor they're a Mumbai based telecommunications company Dream 11 who a lot of people will have heard of now the fantasy sports platform Cred is a fintech company based in Bengaluru Upstocks is another financial services firm in Mumbai you've got Rupay also an Indian company as is Paytm as is Siat so that's all kind of at the league level all very you know indian focused brands which you know i think that does speak to where the ipl is at the moment in terms of its growth globally you know we've mentioned a lot about the domestic audience at the moment but i guess that international audience is something that's going to slowly grow over time and as that happens that is when you're going to see more global brands invest particularly at that league level but as you kind of alluded to before it's not like they're appealing to a small market like it's one sixth of the world's population that these brands are marketing to so it still makes sense that at the moment it is predominantly indian sponsors and based on reporting like those sponsorship deals can range anywhere between 2.5 million to 9 million a year tasa's deal i think is worth around 40 million a year so they're not insignificant sums of money and i'd imagine that indian brands at the moment are still the ones who are more willing to pay that so yeah i think there's sort of there's ways that the competition can start to appeal more to more global brands maybe you know i spoke to someone in the build-up to the tournament who said that the IPL probably needs to look at how it customizes assets for Western companies and looks at how they do business differently. Because as we know, with the IPL, it's quite brazen in the way it promotes brands. You know, everything's kind of presented. Rupay on the go for. Exactly. Like whether it's a boundary, whether it's a timeout, it's presented by something or someone, which is probably another comparison you can make with the Super Bowl, right? I wonder if that's like something that appeals quite as much to global brands. Maybe they want to be integrated a little more subtly, go about their business a little bit more quietly. You say that, but there, there were a couple of examples this year of a few Western brands that have come in that have really embraced that style of marketing embraced that form of sponsorship we had the the herbalife active catch of the match for instance for the the visit saudi beyond the boundary so we have seen it to a smaller degree for sure but the last year or so has seen a greater proportion of those central sponsorship deals moving towards those bigger international brands yeah. that you've mentioned herbalife as well though they have a really big indian business even though they are based in the u.s and then 
similarly visit Saudi and Aramco. I suppose you could kind of view that through the lens of Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 project and, you know, them trying to promote their brands, diversify their revenue streams. Something that could make a real difference to brands being involved in, to global brands being involved in the IPL is if we kind of see the situation eventually where there does become this series of T20 tournaments coming under one umbrella. So, you know, it's been spoken about a lot over the past year and whether we eventually see the South African T20 tournament, the one in the UAE, one in the Caribbean, the Major League Cricket that's being set up as well with IPL owners. If those were to eventually come under, you know, one unified banner and sort of form some sort of global series of T20 tournaments all organised essentially by the IPL, that's probably the point at which you'd see more global brands want to get involved because they'd be able to spread themselves across these multiple different markets and players players playing for the same franchises the activation opportunities are you know you can be much more localized over a a longer term you know if if you're looking to you know move into the caribbean for example and you have sun on the rhine playing for the night riders in six or seven different franchises the opportunity to activate with the same person you know eight or nine times a year is a significantly more attractive commercial opportunity and proposition than it is to activate locally over a six-week period once a year yeah for sure and like one of the biggest selling points for brands at the moment especially those indian facing brands is the access that they get to those superstars because you know, speak to anyone and there are a few other markets that idolize their sports stars like Indian consumers, like Indian fans do, which is why, as you mentioned at the start, you know, MS Dhoni, Virat Kohli, whenever they walk out to the crease. Jumbo jet levels of noise. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Jumbo jet levels of noise. And that's kind of, if you're associated with those individuals through those team sponsorships, let alone the league level ones, um, you know, that's something that's really going to capture the hearts and minds of those people who are watching and kind of really resonate and have that kind of that brand recall i guess is that's something that they're going to recognize so i think the, the point you make is a pretty relevant one talking about some of those bigger brands being involved we did see a, a, an influx of, of big brands coming this year qatar airways sponsoring with rcb as well team viewer with mumbai indians so what i saw was interesting is whilst those central sponsorship contracts are much bigger ticket and they're probably at more of a premium. We saw an increase in team level sponsorships. So I think in your piece, you mentioned with Rise, who work with a lot of those sponsorship deals, they saw a 30% increase in the volume of their deals, but also a 50% increase in the value of those deals. It's a pretty pretty nice place to be yeah. um, when that's the case. Yeah, definitely. I think there were probably a few factors that drove that at the team level as well. I always find it interesting because there'll be different objectives for those brands sponsoring at the league and, and team level, even if you think on a football level. If you ask a Nottingham Forest fan to name who the Premier League sponsors are, probably won't be able to name very many. Whereas if you ask a Nottingham Forest fan to name some of the Nottingham Forest sponsors, they'd be able to rattle them off in yeah. within 30 seconds. So yeah, that's kind of something that you probably gain by taking the team route, and it's probably a cheaper way in yeah. as well. And I think also what will have driven it this year is that the IPL was back in front of home crowds again, which was the first time that was happening in four years. I actually was quite surprised when I heard that. I hadn't realised that that had happened last year because there were still such big audiences. And when you're watching on TV, there's still that level of hype all the time when you're watching the IPL, and which is probably testament to the way it was broadcast in the sense that they were able to mask that with the levels of noise that were coming through and everything. So, But that will have definitely played a part this year in, in those brands signing more team deals because it would have meant they've got more access to those players again, more access to those local audiences 
So that would have been a driver as well, I imagine. But, you know, moving forward as that continues and things return back to normal with the IPL being played in its home and away format, I think that level of deal and sort of the revenues associated with it are only going to increase. I thought it was notable watching this year's tournament to see just quite how many sponsor brands there are and how little asset space there is left. The IPL definitely takes more of the Formula One approach to shirt sponsorship than it does to, say, the Premier League. Yeah, I mean, that's the way it's been from the start, isn't it? Like, it's. I think when you set out, like, from the very beginning as a property that is going to embrace that kind of level of commercialization then it's something that fans are used to from the very start whereas if you try to over commercialize later on you're going to probably face a little bit more resistance but i feel like that's something the ipl has embraced from the outset from its from its founding and you know it's almost something that it's like an innate part of it now it's something we will associate with it and as you you know you have that recall as well of like what who sponsors the boundaries it's something it works so why would they kind of abandon it it's a strategy that that works and generates advertising revenue so yeah it's no surprise that we kind of see that continue we'll we'll, uh we'll be keeping an eye on the next catchy rhyme to to hit us for 2024 and beyond Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but I just need to take a quick break to tell you about Edmonton. Edmonton is a vibrant urban centre in the heart of the wilderness, the largest northernmost metropolis and the capital of Alberta, Canada. Experience what 18 hours of sunlight a day feels like in the summer, or how the first snowfall transforms the river valley in the winter. With sports fans who come out in droves to support their favourite teams and athletes, whether it's hockey, football or soccer, you can feel the energy and excitement in the air at any sporting event in Edmonton. No matter the season, Edmonton is made to host sporting events, organisations and athletes from around the world. What makes Edmonton a premier destination for hosting world-class sporting events? From the FIFA Women's World Cup in 2015 to the recent 2022 Style Experience FIS Snowboarding Big Air World Cup, Edmonton is not afraid of going above and beyond for rights holders, even if it means building a literal mountain in the middle of their football stadium. Edmonton's state-of-the-art facilities, including Rogers Place and Commonwealth Stadium, are among the best in the world, and their experienced event organiser, ensures that every event is executed with precision and professionalism. Explore Edmonton's sports and culture team attracts, develops and supports more than 50 world-class sporting events in the region each year. They work closely with event right holders to enhance and execute sporting events of all kinds. From triathlon to soccer and downhill ice cross, they love it all. Explore Edmonton has a trusted network of partners, including a close connection with the city of Edmonton, who all contribute to the success of your event. That includes securing political and financial support, working out logistics, and making sure you connect with the people you need to reach. To learn more, visit edmontonsportspro.com. That's all one word, edmontonsportspro.com. This year was a big, big year for the IPL as the central tournament, but important also to reference the, the launch of the WPL and the immediate success and the immediate, particularly the immediate commercial success that's come off the back of that launch. So Viacom 18, not just looking to purchase the digital rights for the men's tournament, but they brought the whole thing for the WPL. I think it was 116 million US dollars over five years. So that's about 23 and a half million dollars per season, which like the men's tournament puts it as the second most valuable women's sports property per game, just behind the WNBA. For an inaugural audition, that's an incredible achievement, right? Yeah, it makes you wonder why it's taken until now for it to be introduced, which was another thing that I wrote about earlier 
earlier this year, which is perhaps a negative way of looking at it. I mean, I guess the the positive, the thing to focus on really is that it is here now and that it is generating that revenue. And perhaps if they'd launched it a few years ago, it wouldn't have quite been in a place where broadcasters were prepared to spend that much or the franchise investors were prepared to spend as much as they were. And I actually interviewed Issa Guha at the start of the tournament, who I think she'd called for a, a women's version of the IPO as long ago as 2010. So that's how long the conversation has been going. But as you say, I think those numbers have fully vindicated the decision to launch it and to launch it now. The final, I think, got 50,000 people through the door and none of those tickets were free. So again, that's all new money that's coming into the women's game. And yeah, based on the success that we saw, you imagine that the tournament's only going to get bigger from here. I imagine there's going to be more teams. There were quite a lot of bidders who missed out on those first franchises which went at an average price of 114 million dollars more than the average men's value when they launched in 2008 i think it is exactly exactly and part of that will be because it is cricket and because it is india but you wouldn't have that without the ongoing growth of women's sport globally either and i think what the wpl does it's again putting a value on women's sport that hasn't been there previously and what it's also significantly doing is kind of putting that message out there to other sports properties, other women's sports properties, that this is a level that's attainable, I guess. And it's putting pressure on other broadcasters, other investors that, you know, they should be paying a premium for women's sport because it is a premium property. So I think that's the top line achievement of the WPL in its first season. You know, it's whatever happened on the pitch. I think the real story is commercially in terms of the money that it has been able to generate and, As that money continues to come in, that's going to filter throughout the game, throughout women's cricket. It's going to improve things at the grassroots level. It's going to create a talent pool because you're going to have young females choosing to play cricket because they see that it's a viable career path. You know, some of the top players in that tournament are getting paid $400,000, which is sort of salaries that have never been associated with women's cricket before. So it's kind of sending that message to the next generation that, you know, cricket is a very viable profession if you're a young girl. So you're going to see more women not only in India, but hopefully globally taking up the sport because because of what the WPL has done in its first season. When I compare it to WNBA in terms of the, the amount per game, we can see a pretty significant uptick in terms of player salaries compared to the WNBA when Tom, Josh and I previewed that just a few weeks ago on this podcast. You know, one of the big issues that we saw was the collective bargaining agreement and the need for players to play in other leagues around the world in order to essentially make ends meet and to maximize their playing potential. No such concerns when it comes to the WPL. I think I'm not 100% sure of what their their central contract's worth, but I would imagine that Natsiva Brunt, who was one of those players that was on the sort of 400,000, roughly 400,000 US dollar figure, you'd think it's two to three times at least the annual central contract with ECB. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the the only word of caution now is for women's cricket, I guess. Like, they've obviously got this flagship tournament now and hopefully that leads to sort of, you know, similar similar versions maybe cropping up and also it'll put pressure on those boards to, you know, pay their players a little bit more if they want to retain them and want them to, you know, feature in all their international games, for example, rather than choosing to go and play in these domestic competitions. I guess that that's the sort of issue now, isn't it? In that women's cricket needs to avoid making some of the similar mistakes that we've seen in the men's, where you've now got this ridiculously packed calendar and players just going to have choices. Ultimately, you're going to have players making choices between red ball cricket and white ball cricket. We've already seen a few players in the women's game say that they're going to 
dedicate their careers to the to franchise white ball tournaments because you know that like put simply they are paid better for doing so um so i think that's kind of the next frontier i suppose women's cricket does have a bit of an advantage in that you know it's kind of its rise has coincided with t20 becoming the norm it's not going to be held back by i say held back maybe that's not the right word it might, might might get me in trouble with traditionalists but uh not held back by kind of the you know the red bull game in the same way that the men's might be so it might be a little bit easier for them to strike that balance but but yeah it will be quite important for them that they don't kind of find themselves in the same position that the men's game does at the moment yeah i think they've got much more of a blank canvas to start from they're not up in competition with you know so many bilateral series so i think that there is definitely a huge advantage there one thing i wanted to cover before we we move on you know me sam i could probably be here until the sun sets talking about this but um before the wpl launched there was a a story that went slightly under the radar, which was the name change from the the women's IPL just to just the women's Premier League, and there was a conscious move from the BCCI to disassociate the two tournaments. I think the words they used were to to basically see it as a use case or a test case of whether women's cricket can succeed commercially as a standalone property. The numbers that we've been talking about has got to be a huge voting confidence for that, and another voting confidence of the need to not bundle men and women's commercial rights, sponsored rights, broadcast rights under the same packages, which we've heard a lot over the last 12 months. I was actually fairly surprised when I saw it because in the, in the build-up to it, everyone had just referred to it as the women's IPL because that was kind of, you know, that was the easiest way to do it until the official name came out. But I think it is quite important to make that distinction because otherwise you do risk people seeing it as kind of just an add-on in the same way that it kind of felt like it was in the previous iterations of it you know it used to be just i think it was a three or four game tournament that was tagged on at the end of the men's ipl so if they were really going to kind of invest in this tournament it was kind of important to give it that unique identity as you say that's been reflected in the way they've approached it from a business perspective so obviously i know that there are some of the owners of wpl teams are also owners of ipl franchises but as you say, they had they had a separate tender for the broadcast rights. They didn't bundle those all in with the men's and, you know, reap the benefits of it in terms of the amount of money that they got. And significantly, again, it puts a value on it. It puts that benchmark on it. And, you know, by, by doing so, they've got a better idea of what the women's game is worth. And I know that a lot of the franchises involved, so for example, the Mumbai Indians, they did have some sponsors that covered both the men's and women's teams. But as I understand it, they made a quite a conscious effort to kind of sell sponsorship separately for each team so that again they could get an understanding of what the what the assets for the women's team were worth and also introduce new brands to cricket by doing so essentially brands that don't see a place for themselves in men's cricket and don't see the audience of men's cricket as relevant to them by selling those sponsorships separately they were able to do the opposite and bring some of those brands on board because they think they can resonate with the women's cricket audience i think that'll be the next stage of breaking down the two tournaments is understanding from the broadcasters who is the audience who's viewing what are the viewing habits and how they're changing i think it's no secret it's often discussed and often talked about that the audiences between men and women sports are sometimes you know chalk and cheese um and you know selling a, a bundled sponsorship for both audiences just doesn't seem particularly smart so as you say, that benchmark's been set. More deals are going to follow. Higher deal values are going to follow. So it'll be interesting to see what that tournament looks like in two or three years. But just like the men's version, I can't see it getting smaller. <laughs> no, definitely not. There's no way. 
and I'll be in there. I'll be on my sofa watching. Uh, come whatever may. Well, this is a this is a note from "Come and Get Me, Please," isn't it, George? For someone to someone to fly you out there for a on the ground podcast at the IPL or the WPL or both. Yeah, preferably both, but you know. We're not picky over here on this podcast. I'm going to finally drag myself away from talking about the IPL, Sam, and instead to quickly look at the wrap-up of the Premier League season. It has been quite a dramatic season and quite an important season, both on and off the pitch. As I said, as an Arsenal fan, I'm probably going to keep conversations on the pitch at a minimum. But uh, just looking back over the season, we've seen the government-led white paper, published and the recommendations from that and the calls for an independent regulator. Perhaps coincidentally, we've seen a voluntary front of shirt betting sponsorship ban and we've seen Manchester City hit with more than 100 very serious charges of sort of financial malpractice. And on the pitch, we've seen some pretty substantial changes as well. We've seen a World Cup take place in the middle of a Premier League season for the first time. We've seen probably the biggest transfer in footballing history with Cristiano Ronaldo going over to Saudi Arabia for silly money. Have you seen the last nine months or so of the Premier League campaign? It's felt like it's gone on for ages, probably because of what you mentioned about the, the World Cup break in the middle. But yeah, it's been, it's been a really interesting season, actually. Um, I feel like... Some of the stuff you alluded to there, there were a lot of sort of questions at the start of the season off the pitch. And it feels like quite a few of those are still kind of unanswered, especially from that kind of governance perspective and the financial side of things as well. You know, as you mentioned, we kind of got confirmation that there are plans to introduce a, a regulator, although it's kind of less clear how and when that's going to happen. Although I think the most recent reporting was sort of from the 24 25 season um but that's kind of contributed to a few of the things that you mentioned there so we've sort of seen various examples this year and i don't think it's any coincidence that of the premier league essentially trying to prove that it can regulate itself so all of those charges that it handed down to manchester city came in and around the time that there were discussions of those regulators and whether anything will come of those charges i'd personally i sincerely doubt it but it was a step that was the premier league kind of showing that it wants to be able to govern itself still after that you had the premier league introducing new rules on human rights ownership something that's kind of obviously been under the microscope for quite a long time predominantly or sort of intensified because of the newcastle takeover but has also shone a new light on manchester city as well and has also added further scrutiny to those who are linked with buying clubs and then you also had the betting ban as well. So it was kind of three pretty high profile examples where the Premier League was sort of trying to prove that it can regulate itself. And sort of bubbling away in the background of all this, you also have this new deal for football that it's trying to agree with the EFL. So that's still something, the conversations around that feel like they've been going on for a really, really long time. Still no new agreement yet. And we kind of watch pretty closely. So it's been an interesting season, probably one of the more exciting seasons as well on the pitch, you know, with Arsenal returning up there, Chelsea kind of flopping in the way that they did, Newcastle, running into the top four alongside a couple of other clubs who have, um, you know, Brighton, for example, who have proved that, you know, you don't necessarily have to be one of the highest revenue generating clubs now to break into that top six. You know, if you have a different, maybe more data driven approach, there are ways to kind of infiltrate it. And then we also saw, you know, one of the more recent Premier League champions getting relegated. So it's been a pretty, yeah, pretty crazy year and some interesting stuff happening on the sort of governance, financial, commercial side as well, for sure. 
Now, Sam, you know I'm not one to put you under the pump in a public forum, but you did mention some questions that were raised at the beginning of the season. So that naturally led me to an article that you wrote on the 4th of August saying five commercial questions for the Premier League to be facing in the 22-23 season. So I thought I'm going to ask you them again based on what you wrote last time. We'll see if things have panned out in the way that you thought staring into the crystal ball back in August. So the first was, what do Fulham's fortunes say about the Premier League's financial cliff edge? So essentially the yo-yo clubs, do they do they showcase a gaping chasm between the EFL and the Premier League when it comes to the riches involved? Yeah, so I actually wrote that question in mind that Fulham were just going to get relegated as they sort of tend to do. So perhaps that one's <laughs> a bit of egg on the face of that one. But I think the point still stands. I think also this is probably the first season in, that I can remember in a long time where all three promoted sides have stayed up. But kind of interestingly, you know, two of those sides, Fulham and Bournemouth, have both benefited from from parachute payments in recent years. Um, Forrest haven't, but Forrest spent about £150 million and maybe more since they came up, which is something that promoted sides can do now. They can take that risk because they can fall back on those parachute payments. And then, you know, you look back, you look down the league at, who's come up from the championship this season Burnley and Sheffield United two teams who have benefited from those parachute payments Luton less so which is an incredible story in of itself coming up through the playoffs but I think even just the fact that Fulham you know they were just using as an example in this question but I think the fact that they've stayed up that Bournemouth have stayed up that you see the identity of those teams coming up it still does illustrate that there is a massive financial cliff edge between the Premier League and the Championship because it's so sort of uncommon that we see a new side coming up. You know, it very often is a side that's been relegated from the Premier League in the last two or three years, which kind of shows the impact that those parachute payments still have, which while I think they've been described as a necessary evil before. Well, the, the disparity is huge. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You talk of Fulham, do you know how much they're rewarded for finishing first in the Championship in 2022? I, I mean, it won't have been a lot. Without, it's, 10 million. So that's incorporating everything. Norwich, he finished 20th in the Premier League in the same season. Do you know what that that same figure is? Could have been sort of five times that probably. 100 million. So 10 times that figure. Impossible to compete with. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we've seen more teams in the Championship suffer financial difficulties this year. I think Reading and Wigan, you know, well done. Birmingham as well, possibly, I think. That's what happens, you know, with these teams outside of those those clubs receiving those parachute payments. If they want to keep pace with them, if they want to chase the Premier League dream as well, they kind of live outside of their means sometimes. And that's kind of, that's a lot of the focus of these these conversations around the new deal for football that I mentioned is kind of narrowing that gap so that, you know, teams don't feel like they have to spend that way if they want to compete. So, yeah, I think the question maybe was a little bit unfair on Fulham, but I think the point behind it still stands. Yeah, and Rick Parry, he's the the CEO of the EFL. He's been pretty vocal in leading, leading the charge for that new deal, looking to sort of take a 25% share of TV revenue from the Premier League. But obviously that has to be ratified by the Premier League clubs and... Uh, to use the words of Mike Atherton, you're not going to get turkeys to vote for Christmas. So uh, I'm not going to hold my breath on, on that one coming through. Now, the second question you posed was around the new ownerships. So what will be the impact of the new owners at Newcastle and Chelsea? Let's look back at those. Yeah, I think you probably say Newcastle has probably gone better than anyone could have expected. Chelsea has probably gone worse than anyone could have expected. I think what it's kind of exposed about the Chelsea takeover was that 
it was a bit of a vanity project for Todd Bowley. He came in, seemed to want to splash a load of money on some marquee signings without much strategy behind them. So it felt like a very disjointed team throughout the season. He wanted to be very close to basically the football side of things and the running of the club which never really felt like the smartest thing to do because he's never run a football club before. He's been part of running sports teams, but he's never run a football club. They've sacked two managers this season, spent nearly £600 million on new players, and they've ended up finishing 12th. And, you know, without that Champions League revenue coming in, if they don't get back into the Champions League within the next few years, you know, that's going to be a real issue for them. And it was actually confirmed today that their president, Tom Glick, is leaving and he's going to be well essentially replaced by a ceo in the form of chris jurisek who has spent 10 years as an operating executive at clear lake capital who are obviously kind of the main funders of that takeover so it's perhaps suggests that clear lake want a little bit more control over their investment moving forward and maybe we're going to see a little bit less of todd so yeah you could probably say that the impact of chelsea's takeover hasn't been quite what was desired whereas you know, talking about Todd Bowley not running things properly on that side, you contrast that with Newcastle, they've sort of done the opposite. They've, you know, people probably thought when their Saudi owners came in that they'd be making a lot of noise, spending a lot of money, being pretty disruptive, whereas they've gone about their business fairly quietly. I think they've they've invested pretty smartly on the playing side of things without overspending and without sort of disrupting the harmony of the squad that was already there and then on kind of the business side of it and the operational side they've got the right people in place so they can deliver on the pitch so yeah i feel like newcastle were well ahead of the schedule you know people probably expected them to break into the top four within the next few years i don't think anyone would have expected them to be there this year so and you can only see them going from strength to strength from here you know they've got the wealthiest backers in football essentially now so they're only going to strengthen now they're in that champions league and have access to that additional revenue um no doubt they're going to be able to justify more lucrative sponsorship deals now as well so you know yeah it's you know it's newcastle back in the champions league it's nice for them nice for their supporters but perhaps less nice for you know the people who still aren't too thrilled about how they've managed to get there yeah the issue of geopolitical investment in football really really is head again this season looks like not for the final time as well the potential for Qatar to be involved in, in manchester united as that takeover deal sort of still rumbles on in the background so that topic has come back and it's not going away anytime soon right no definitely not and i think fans are just increasingly aware of this as well it's really interesting you've got like fans in 2023 not really worrying about who they're signing on the pitch but more worried about who where the next sort of hundred million pound investment is coming from you know why don't we you know you get a lot of fans asking you know the only way for us to compete is if we get an investment from qatar which is quite a depressing place to be in i think in that these football clubs that are pillars of their communities are essentially being used as these geopolitical tools and you know in some cases you know fans are kind of hoping that they're going to be taken over by these regimes now which is you know it's quite sad but i guess it's it's where we are and it, if it's i suppose if it's what floats your boat i guess yeah probably a, a question that's going to be raised ahead of the new season in just a couple of months time the third question you posed was will the premier league make an nft play which uh is almost a hearkening back to, to a bygone era talking about nft plays yeah that seems a little not ridiculous but it seems a, a little sort of consigned to history that project yeah. for the time being or put on ice yeah i mean i spoke before about how it feels like this season's gone on forever but i mean the fact that that question it's not redundant but it's like a lot less relevant now than it was back then just shows how quickly that has moved on as you say 
they did make an NFT play to be fair they signed a deal with Sora which was reportedly worth 30 million pounds a year but the initial reporting around that was that they were going to sign a deal that was going to be worth about 400 million pounds so you know the the drop-off in that shows you just how quickly the kind of nft market has declined and it's just not the revenue opportunity that a lot of sports thought it was going to be on the back of nba top shot which was kind of what kicks all this off and so yeah probably need to spend as much time on that question because it has just become it does feel like very irrelevant now and sort of one of the more minor storylines behind the scenes well the next question is a lot more relevant when we've covered a little bit already but you asked do clubs really have the appetite to walk away from betting yeah so I suppose you could say yes to an extent. <laughs> They've walked away from it, but you know they're sort of subtly holding its hand behind them. They're still dragging it along with them, aren't they? So obviously we saw, I think it was last month, the Premier League announced that the clubs have agreed a voluntary ban on betting sponsors from, I think it's the 26-27 season. That's just for the front of the shirts. So, you know, it's a, I suppose you could say it's, is it even a step in the right direction? You know, there's three more years of betting sponsors on the front of shirts they're still going to be able to advertise on the sleeves they're still going to be be able to advertise in stadiums so i think you really have to question whether they do have the appetite to walk away from it because ultimately i think what you're going to see is the value of sleeve deals is going to increase yeah you read a great piece about how that would drive demand for other assets precisely so you know the problem betting sponsors aren't going to disappear from football just because of the front of shirt betting ban they're still going to be pretty prevalent for me again it kind of this harkens back to the to the answer to the first question I gave about the Premier League trying to show that it can regulate itself. It was just another example of that because kind of getting out in front of the the government's review on on gambling, which could ultimately introduce more more strict measures, but there's been kind of delays on that. So the Premier League doing this now is kind of it taking a more active step and trying to get out in front of it, I think. But yeah, the appetite the appetite, I'd say, is kind of partial rather than the full appetite to walk away from it. And the issue's really come back with a vengeance, given the news of Ivan Tony's ban and the subsequent revelation that he suffered from a gambling addiction for a number of months at least. And Hollywood Bet is his front of shirt sponsor. There's betting sponsorships plastered all over Brentford's kit, Brentford Stadium, etc. So it shows that it's needed more than ever. Yeah, that case of Ivan Tony really brought, brought it to the fore, didn't it? Because... A lot of the time when people are campaigning against betting sponsorships, they're campaigning against, you know, the impact that it can have on problem gamblers, for example. But, you know, you never really see examples of those problem gamblers. It's kind of, it's not something that you can perhaps visualise. Whereas, you know, seeing it happen to one of the top scorers in the Premier League shows that it can happen to anyone, really. And it does show the impact, you know, Ivan Tony might not have been influenced that much by the betting sponsors, but no doubt, you know, the fact that he's seeing it on his shirt every day, the fact that he's seeing it on the perimeter advertising boards around the stadiums that he's playing. Almost certainly involved in activations. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's it's everywhere betting in, in football and I don't think a ban on just them appearing on the front of the shirts is going to make that change. The final question you posed sits probably more on the playing side, definitely more on the playing side, but what the impact would be on players and an increasingly packed schedule. It seems a lifetime ago that the World Cup took place back in November. I cannot imagine how long ago the start of the season must feel for some players across their clubs. What's been your take on that over the course of the year? And is this, are we fighting a losing battle? Yeah, I think player welfare like will continue to be an issue more so over the coming years as you see as you see more governing bodies like FIFA and, and UEFA kind of basically um, 
posture for for more tournaments more football so that they can make more money exactly and you know the only losers in that situation are the players really because they're going to have less gaps in their schedule they're going to there's going to be more wear and tear on their bodies there's going to be more injuries and then that kind of diminishes the product in the long run because if the top players are out less people are going to want to watch it particularly in a time where there's there's been rumblings around the salary cap in football yeah uh, exactly. really tough pill to swallow for a player uh, <laughs> earn less or or the same amount but play significantly more yeah exactly so i think that's only going to be an issue that kind of becomes more relevant over the coming years perhaps it didn't take off quite as much this year as I thought it might you know I'm sure someone's done a study on how many injuries there were post World Cup but kind of speaking on the surface perhaps it didn't feel like there were but you know you think about it now it feels like this season is it obviously has finished a little bit later than it normally would because of the World Cup we're still going to have the Champions League final doesn't take place until I think it's the 10th of June so there's so much football still to play and then most of these players will probably get a few weeks off and then they'll be jetting off to Asia the US you know, wherever else these teams are heading off on their pre-season tours and then they'll be straight back into another season before they know it. So, you know, I think that issue of player welfare is definitely, it's not one that's going to go away. And footballers are increasingly kind of emboldened now to speak out on issues. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's kind of a topic that's raised by a few of the more high-profile ones in the coming years. Well, Sam, it's been a pleasure wrapping up the biggest sporting weekend I can remember for, for quite a while. Um, I've enjoyed it immensely. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, cheers, George. Thanks for having me. My uh, throat's about to give away, so I'm about to guzzle a gallon of water, I think. But yeah, great to be on. Cheers for having me. We'll see you soon.